I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy in a, in a manner, excuse me, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us in accordance to the measure of Christ's gift. This is God's word. Welcome, Dale. Thanks, Vince. You guys hear me? I am... I was just sitting there, and the gospel song came on, and I, I just have so much joy this morning, um, just to be able to, to to stand up here and and convey what God has been um, revealing to me throughout this week as I was preparing, and and I hope that today uh, I, I'm able to just kind of point everybody to the gospel. Um, what what I want to start with is uh, I have a question. Who here considers themselves a history buff? Nobody? Couple, couple people? Can anybody tell me a significant thing that happened in the summer of 1969? Woodstock? I'm not sure if that's right or not. <laughs> no. There you go. That's not it either. Um, well, no, what, what I'm looking for is that the U.S. actually went to the moon. We, we put the first people on the moon. Yeah. So this, this mission to the moon was called Apollo 11. And uh, it was in the midst of the Cold War, right? And, and if you don't know what the Cold War is, it's this... Um, geopolitical tension between the democratic United States and the Soviet, the, the communist Soviet Union. I won't get into all the details, but they were, they were fighting, arguing, trying to prove their superiority, essentially prove that their style of government is better than the other. They were uh, fighting over technology, whose military was better. One of the arenas that they're that they were um, pitted against each other in was space, okay? So you could say that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in a space race, which is really fun to say. Um, so the U.S. made it to the moon first. We won. We beat the Soviets. And this brought the U.S. together, right? This unified the U.S. I wasn't there. I know half of you guys probably weren't there. But... We, we can see through in, in history books, it brought the U.S. together, us going to the moon before the Soviets. And this was 1969, in the midst of, of the Vietnam War, in the midst of the civil rights struggles, right? This one event brought people together. That was 1969. It's 2019, 50 years later. 
There's a movie coming out in a couple months called Apollo 11. And it's a documentary or a movie about what had happened. And it's interesting because if you, if you watch the trailer for this, they use this tagline. And it says, witness the last time we were one. Think about it. Marketing genius. Okay? <laughs> right? I, would you all agree that we are currently living in divided, tribalized times? Our, our country is divided. Our culture is divided. And in the face of that, Hollywood knows what we want. Okay? Hollywood knows that we are going into, it's 2019, you know, it's next year, 2020, another election year. Hollywood knows that things are just going to keep getting more and more divided. So what do they do? This marketing team uses that to their advantage. They're pushing on these, these cultural times that we're in and appealing to trying to get people to watch their movie, essentially. <laughs> and they say, witness the last time we were one. What do we need in this current cultural climate? Do we need Hollywood to make us a movie? Do we, do we need to go to the moon again? What if we are in a race with Russia to get to Mars? Right? There, there's just these questions. There's a, there's a problem. Our culture is divided. And, and we need answers. America is divided and looking for answers. And oftentimes, this sneaks into the body of Christ, right? Oftentimes, we don't live differently than, than the rest of our culture. There's these divisions, and we even contribute to these divisions. The westernized church is divided along political, racial, socioeconomic, geographical lines. We are divided. The church is divided. And if you don't believe that, you're living under a rock. It's so easy to, it's so easy to tell. It's so easy to point out what you dislike or disagree with about somebody or about their views. I believe the world is dying for unity. I believe the world is dying for unity. I'm not the only one. The marketing team of Apollo 11 believes <laughs> this world is dying for unity. Witness the last time we were one. But see, God designed his children to be living in unity with one another, to be in a beautiful, harmonious relationship with one another. Jesus prayed in the garden that we would be one. How are we doing? Jesus said that, that they will know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. How are we doing? I think as a, as a church as a whole, not so well. I will say the, the church of New City, I believe we actually do a really good job at this. Look around. We're so different, every one of us, and we display this. But this message that Paul has today, that we're reading today, the, the message that he has for the church at, um, at Ephesus is crucial for their times. It's crucial for our times. This is important. 
No matter how good we are at doing this as a church of New City, this topic of being unified as a body of believers is crucial for us to understand. So I have a question for you. The question that I hope to answer as we go on this morning is how do we, how do we preserve, preserve this unity that we have? How do we model it for others? How do we model it for the, the westernized church that's divided? How do we model it for a, a hurt and broken world that is longing for unity? So that's what I hope to answer today. Uh, we're in Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 7. And remember, like I said just a bit ago, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And I argue that those times were even more divided and tribalized than we are now. He's writing to people, uh, people of all nations, all classes, to slaves, to gladiators, to politicians, Romans, Greeks, Jews. And he's saying, hey, drop all of your feuds and let's sit together in this wonderful unity that we have in Christ. Unity probably seemed impossible for them just like it might seem impossible for us today. This is crucial, crucial for us to, to realize that we are divided and there is an answer, okay? You can feel in, in, in the tone of verse, even verse one, the weight that, this, that, that Paul is writing with. You can feel the tension this was important. This is important. Uh, as I was preparing, uh, I was praying over the passage and, and reading it, and uh, I, I got stuck on actually the first two words of verse one. And, um, and those words are, it's I, therefore. So essentially, I got stuck on the word therefore. It's usually a word that I read and I just skim over. Um, but God was pointing me to this word for a reason. So before we dive even further into this passage, I just want to uh, explain to you guys the importance of this word, therefore. And this is, this is a good time to do it because we see Paul uh, was writing to the church at Ephesus. He dropped three chapters of doctrinal bombs. <laughs> <laughs> He spends three chapters essentially explaining that through Christ, God is creating something entirely new, something entirely different. Through Christ, God is creating a new society, a new humanity, right? He, Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled only through Christ. He sees a fractured humanity being unified only through Christ. Then there's a shift. He, three dense chapters of doctrine. He goes from the new society that God has established to the new standard that which this society should live by. He goes from what God has done to what we ought to do. From doctrine to duty. From deep down theology to its concrete meaning for everyday life. 
We see him say, look what God has done. He spends three chapters saying, look what God has done for you. Look what has been freely given to you. Therefore, this is completely different than most worldviews, right? Most worldviews say, hey, do this, and this is what you'll receive. But Paul here is just beautifully displaying the gospel for us and saying, look what has been done for you. So therefore, it was only after Paul lays down the gospel and lays down our complete inability to attain salvation on our own, it was only then that he says, okay, live like this, okay? You see that this doctrine and this practice can't be separated. Paul understands this. This word therefore is so crucial. It bridges the gap between doctrine and practice. Um, quickly, if you, if you have doctrine, but you don't have practice, it's dead faith. Okay, you know everything. It's all good info. You store it up in your head, but you stop there. There's no fruit. That's called dead faith. And if you have practice, but no doctrine, it's blind faith. You don't really understand everything, which is okay, but you don't want to understand everything. You don't care to learn more about Christ. All you want to do is experience everything that he has for us. Your faith isn't rooted in what Christ has done, but what you can get out of it. That's blind faith. Exhortations become empty moralism if it's not, and, and legalism if it's not rooted in a gospel foundation. So Paul understands the importance of both doctrine and practice, which is why he uses this word, therefore, in most of his epistles. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers and theologians, preached four sermons in a row on this one word, therefore. <laughs> a month of preaching about one single word. It bridges the gap between doctrine and practice. Therefore. So Paul just drops three dense chapters of doctrine. He's probably going to say something pretty good about how we should live about it, right? And this is, this is the hinge, therefore, in, in verse one, this is the hinge. So what Paul is going to say has to be important for us, right? What should we do? All right, let's finally dive into this passage for today. <laughs> Ephesians 4, verse one, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What? You guys understand that? It's kind of confusing. For me, I was reading this and I was kind of confused at first. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A lot of words there. But check this out. Again, Paul just described our heavenly position in Christ and our, and our uh, possessions uh, uh, that we have here on earth, of every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is our calling Okay. God calls us his sons and daughters. 
He calls us to be part of his family. He calls us to join in with him in his mission. He calls us his beloved. I'll just quickly list a few things that that Paul says in the first chapter of Ephesians. God chose us for himself before the world was created. He predestined us to be his children. That means we're the heirs of his kingdom. Okay, he sent Christ to atone for our trespasses, sealed us with the Holy Spirit to preserve us forever. I can go on. Paul goes on in this. What Paul is saying is, I urge you to walk worthy in light of everything that I just said in verse, or chapters one through three. Walk worthy of that calling. We have to understand the weight of this. Guys, this is exciting. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive. He gave us his son and he died on a cross, right? He, he brought us up out of the grave. There's no doubting the worth that we have in God's eyes. So Paul is saying, walk worthy. Walk as if you are a new creation. Walk as if you're part of this new society, this new humanity that, that God has created through the cross. This gets me pumped up. Maybe I drank too much coffee this morning, but <laughs> this gets me so pumped up. Walk worthy. You have been called to, to, to this, this beautiful life in Christ. You're part of a new humanity a new society, so walk worthy of that. Walk in that calling. Walk in that unity that we have. Walk in that unity that we have. What does it practically look like to walk in unity? We're all so different. In our differences, in our diversity, what does unity look like? In general, when a group of people like us come together, there's going to be differences. It's, it, that's how it is. We're all different people, different backgrounds, races, careers, political stances. Every, we're all so different. Nathan Holstein, in, in a, one of his books, said it this way. I don't know if we have, we have it up there. Nathan Holstein says, Nevertheless, from our human perspective, we often see this diversity as a pain in the church. Different people, different perspectives, different gifts, different concerns. This all adds up to conflict, to friction, to difficulty. That's why it is vital we are reminded regularly, variety in the church is God's design. God designed us to be different. So it all comes down to, you want to practically be unified in the church? Well, we're different. God made us different. So it all comes down to how we respond to those differences. I came up with four ways in which people usually respond to diversity. There's probably more, but I only came up with four, so that's all you guys get. <laughs> no, I think these four cover actually a lot of what we see um, today. Number one, number one is divisiveness, okay? If there's diversity, oftentimes people result to being divisive, okay? This is attacking and putting others down. B 
because they're different, because they're, they're, they have different ideals or different political stances, whatever you want. You see that the difference, we see the differences, but instead of addressing them with love, we address them by even further pushing each other apart. It, it, divisiveness only deepens this chasm between people. We're already different in so many ways. Why are we choosing to be even more divided? It doesn't make any sense. Is this true? Do we see this in our culture? Oh, yeah. yeah. Again, politicians are, are currently and about to start putting their names in the hat um, for presidency. Okay? That means campaign time is around the corner. We all know what happens during campaign time. It's ugly. It's ugly, not in just in America, but also in the body of, of, of believers too. It's divisive. Are we doing things as a church that alienates people? Um, would you guys agree that divisiveness is not the correct way to respond to our differences? Yes. Okay. Let's move on to number two. Uniformity. Okay. I went to Webster's Dictionary, Webster's.com, whatever you want to call it, and I got the, the definition for you. It says, having always the same form, manner, and degree, not varying. One way that we respond to our differences is by crushing them, right? Is by squashing our differences. I don't like how different we are, so let's just get rid of those differences. Uniformity is an army of thousands of soldiers walking together in that perfect unison. It's kind of scary. <laughs> uh, the truth is uniformity is the, is the complete absence of diversity. Uniformity is the absence of diversity. You ever go to a graduation and you're trying to find somebody who you, you're there for, and you're like... Everybody's wearing the same cap, same gown. You're like, is that him? I'm like, no, no. This is why cults are so attractive to people. There's no ambiguity, right? There's no divisions. And, and in a cult, you kind of know what you're going to get. It's uniformity. <laughs> uniformity. Uniformity is extremely boring, okay? And uniformity is not God's design. Can we all agree that uniformity is not the correct way to address diversity? Yes. All right. Number three, damage control. And I'm talking about damage control in the sense of not wanting to make things worse. This is when we know that there's differences, but I just have to be civil with that guy. I just have to be civil with that person. I think this is common. I'm guilty of it. I've faked phone calls before to get out of certain conversations. <laughs> Am I the only one that's done that? Please tell me. I'm like, ooh, this is turning, this is turning kind of bad. I'm like, oh, hey, oh yeah, yeah, I'll be right there. Hold on. Oh, I got to go. Sorry, dude. That's damage control. That's damage control. <laughs> We don't want to cause problems, so we avoid people, or we, we, we push people away. Can we agree this isn't the correct way to, to uh, address diversity? 
All right, good. We're all on the same page. God loves that we are different. Okay? He doesn't want us to be pushing each other away. He wants us to be in relationships. He designed us to be in relationships. He doesn't want us to be the same. Again, he designed us to be different. He doesn't want us to be simply civil with each other. We're called to walk arm in arm, linked with our brothers and sisters, and to join in this mission that God has. Which leads me to number four, unity in diversity. Okay? Obviously, this is the answer. I'm going to ask you guys the question if this is right. Just make sure you say yes. When individuality and diversity are embraced and encouraged, it leads to a beautiful harmony. When individuality is embraced and encouraged, it's beautiful. It's the way that God has designed it to be. This is our call. Again, this is what Paul was talking about. This is the call. He urges us to walk in unity. And he doesn't leave us hanging. He's, he doesn't say, hey, just walk in unity. And you're like, okay, that's cool. Um, but he says, here is the practice. Verse two. With, uh, sorry, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. What do we see? We see humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing one another in love. Those are characteristics that don't come naturally for a lot of us. We, I, I often feel um, prideful. I'm brash sometimes, impatient, angry. I get annoyed, especially if I'm in a conversation with somebody who completely disagrees with me right? It's hard. It's hard. And it's hard, especially if, if the people we're talking to aren't displaying those characteristics, right? If they're being brash to you, if they're angry with you, how, how hard is it to say, you know what? I love you. It's tough. But check it out. Paul is pointing to something in this passage. This is the answer Okay, how do, I, how do I be humble? How do, I, how do I become gentle and patient when I, I don't agree with people, when they don't agree with me? The answer is the gospel. As simple as that may sound, that is the answer. Look at the gospel. What if the church started truly going the way of the cross? What Paul is saying, we ought to love others because we have been loved and we will always be loved because of what Christ has done. We, should, we ought to forgive others because we've been forgiven. We will always be forgiven. You see, Christ points out we need, we need to take up our cross. What does that mean? That means we absorb judgment and we give love, okay? We withhold wrath and give mercy. That's exactly what Christ did up on the cross. 
okay, how do you be humble, patient, gentle, and, and bear one another in love? Look at the cross. Look at what Christ did for you on the cross. Perfectly humble. Perfectly gentle, perfectly patient, complete love. Furthermore, Ephesians 2. Here's some, here's some more doctrine for you from these first three chapters. I'm just going to read it off my notes. Verse 14 through 16 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups talking about Jews and Gentiles, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. By the cross, Christ says, put to death our hostility. By the cross, Christ has given you everything that you need to be unified completely in our diversity. Amen. By the cross, there is a unity that has been established already, right? Which is why Paul urges us in verse three to maintain in the unity of the spirit. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Maintain means that something was already established. We are already unified. He, he explains how we're unified by giving us these seven areas or seven things that, that um, make us unified, okay? And this is in verse four. It says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. We're unified. He lays out these seven ones, we'll call it. But as I was thinking about this, this is kind of a tangent. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of that Bob Marley song. The one love. One, I can't sing, but let's get together. Yeah. Um, if you know me, you'll know that I'm actually one of the biggest reggae fans you'll ever meet. And so with that in mind, I want to publicly um, give my opinion and say that Bob Marley is overrated and his music is trash. And if you want to be divisive, we can argue about it after the sermon. All right, moving on. So let's talk about these seven ways that we're unified, okay? He lists them here. I think we have a, a slide for it. He says, one body. We're unified in one body. That means we are all one family, family unified for one purpose, one spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit as our power source, one hope. We all have the same future. 
one Lord. We've all put our trust in the same person, and that's Jesus Christ. One faith, we all trust that Jesus' sacrifice saves us. One baptism, we all have a single identity, and that identity is rooted in Christ. One God and Father. I love this one. One God and Father. We all share the same source of existence. We are already unified in more ways than you think. You look around this room and you say, wow, I am so different than most of these people. But Paul here says, no, you have so much more in common. If you've placed your trust in God, if you're a child of God, you have so much more in common with your brothers and sisters than you already think. But hold on, you guys remember those infomercials? They're like, but wait, there's more. <laughs> That's what Paul does in, in verse seven here. <laughs> oh, let me read it. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Not only has he chose us, not only has he predestined us, sealed us, not only all of those things, but he's also given us grace and it's in the form of spiritual gifts. He's even further equipped us to be unified. We're going to talk about it next week. I believe Kenny's preaching and he's going to talk about APEST and, and these spiritual gifts that we've been graciously given. But what Paul is talking about here is he's saying, we have been equipped for our calling. We have been given everything we need to be united as a body of believers. Okay. That's unity in diversity. That one was a lot longer than the other three um, points that I had. But I'm going to ask a question. Would you guys agree that this is the correct way to address our diversity? Yes. The gospel is the correct way to address our diversity. We are one body. And if we're one body, Christ must always remain at the head. I'm going to go off on a little side tangent. Have you guys ever heard of Mike the Headless Chicken? Okay, this is not going to help me prove my point, but there was a chicken or a, a farmer who was slaughtering chickens, was, went to cut off the chicken's head, cut off his head, but somehow missed his jugular vein. Anyways, that chicken had lived for a year and a half without a head. And it was scientifically proven. They like brought it to a university and, and, um, and they figured out like, I don't know how it happened, but Mike the Headless Chicken lived for a year and a half. Without a, uh, without a head. <laughs> this is a useless, useless fact. But. So besides Mike the headless chicken, the body is completely useless without its head. <laughs> Sorry, this is this is that was bad. You see, the one who did all of the work, all of the heavy lifting for us, he needs to remain at the head. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start concluding here. Um, I just want you guys to 
Imagine the weight we would feel if we tried to manufacture this unity on our own. It's, that weight would be too great to bear. It's impossible. But in the gospel, we have unity. Christ has already unified his people, the people that he has called. Dallas Willard, my favorite author, but my second favorite book of all time, uh, Renovation of the Heart, says, not having the burden of defending and securing ourselves and now acting from the resources of our new life from above, we can devote our lives to the service of others. See, Jesus went to the cross for us to be one, for us to be unified. So I'm asking you guys, to what lengths are you going to go to maintain this unity that Christ has established through the cross? To what lengths are we going to go to maintain this unity? If you're a believer here, know that there is oneness already established. If you're not a believer, also know that there is oneness already established, but the grace that we have received for that oneness to be established is free for you. Once we truly comprehend this, that that Christ has established unity and we don't have to manufacture it, once we understand that, then it's just unity is going to become even more evident than it is here at New City. It's going to be more evident in San Diego, more evident in America and the world. In the broader picture, and as simple as this might be, more practically, just remember what's more important. We have more important things to worry about We have more important um, roles in the mission of God. We've been called into the mission of God, called into unity. Is that not more important than arguing with somebody on Facebook about politics? We have more important things. See, Paul's plea for unity isn't saying that we need to be eye to eye on every topic. Paul's plea for unity is, is he's urging us to maintain the unity that, was already, that has already been established. Um, when was the last time you prayed that the church would be unified? Jesus prayed for it in the garden, like I said earlier. When was the last time we prayed for this? This is important Um, Like I said, I believe New City does a good job at it. But as a culture, we are just so divided. But there's an answer, okay? And it's not the movie Apollo 11. (laughs) The answer is the gospel. Um, The band, you guys can go ahead and come back up. So uh, at the beginning, I, I said that there was a question Um, that I was going to answer. And that question, again, is how do we keep the unity that we have? How do we model it for a divided, westernized church and for 
a broken world that is dying for unity? Again, the answer is simple. It's the grace that we've received in the gospel. We rest in the truths about who we are in Christ. And then we turn to the Holy Spirit to help us continue to be unified. Uh, we're going to go ahead and actually take, take some time to um, respond to that um, through communion. And it's just a time where we can obviously remember. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which was broken for you. This is my blood that was poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we do that, remember that we are in a divided culture, a divided world. But yet that body that he broke and that blood that was spilled has unified us as a body of believers. Let me go ahead and pray, uh, and then we're going to continue in worship as we respond. Father, we thank you that, one, we could gather here freely, Lord, and, and worship you. We're thankful that we have been unified not only to our brothers and sisters, but we've been unified to you by the work of the cross. Thank you that we don't have to try really, really hard to, to do this. We don't have to try really, really hard to be unified. Father, we thank you for the differences that we have. We thank you that you've made us diverse, that you haven't made us uniform, all the same. That's how you designed us, Father. And now I ask that you help us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you help the body of Christ be one so that this hurting world can see your beauty. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.